So, we're continuing with our study on um, the book of Samuel, Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. We did um, say that originally these two volumes were one book. Mm. And uh, we looked at Samuel as a boy hearing God's voice for the first time. Yes. And the very first thing that the God of the universe speaks to Samuel the boy is a message of judgment. Yes. Uh, and interestingly enough, he doesn't tell Samuel what to do with this message. Mm. He no just declares his will yes. to Samuel, tells him what is going to happen. Yes. And that's it. And then Eli asks of him what did the Lord tell him, and um, as a boy, yeah. he has to tell his father figure yeah. the terrible news of judgment that there will be no sacrifice or atonement mm. forever that can ever be made to rectify. For, yeah, for the house of Eli. Dramatic. It is bigger even than a person can fathom to even think of the fact that a high priest's house is declared by God mm. to be beyond salvation and forgiveness. Redemption. There's no redemption. There's no mm. atonement that can be made for the house of Eli. Mm. And uh, we looked at the fact that this was an act of virtue, although Samuel was scared and afraid mm. to tell him in, in, in the beginning. He still tells him everything. Yeah, and it says he holds nothing back. He did not hide anything. So, so today we're going to look at the prophetic significance of some of the details in uh, mm. the script. Uh, is it just a, 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 a historic record of what happened leading up to the anointing of the kings? Is that what the purpose of the books are? Is it just a historic? Uh, Maybe we, it was. Okay. <laughs> We're going to show that it's actually definitely part of the prophetic unfolding. Mm. Um, so let's dive into it. We're going to just uh, have a look at chapter 3 again. Yes. So chapter 3, there's some, obviously the story is told. The story is going to be, uh, it's the end of the day, Samuel goes to bed, he hears a voice calling him, mm. it turns out not to be Eli, Eli tells <laughs> him, answer the Lord, the Lord speaks to him, he gives the message of doom to Eli and that's it. Okay, but there's detail in the script, yes. that is very interesting. Um, uh, verse 1, chapter 3 says, now the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revela revelation. So we did go into that a little bit. And then, very importantly, at the moment when Eli says to him, when the Lord calls to you again in verse 6, um, he says, when the Lord speaks to you, answer the Lord. And he lay down, and then verse 7, it says, Now Samuel did not know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Mm. 
And this is very important. Why was that inserted? What's the purpose of that? So this will lead us, this is the clue that is going to lead us into understanding the prophetic significance to this. But it's, this one clue is not enough. The actual clue is going to lie in what house, which of the twelve houses of Israel Samuel is from, and that is going to start to lead us on the road of discovery. So hopefully in this um, teaching we're going to have time to look at why the Ark of the Covenant was yeah. taken. Maybe hopefully. we'll get there, maybe not. Um, so let's go back to the beginning of the story before we start uh, revealing all the other things. Yes. And then just maybe remind us of some of the mm. things that we should be paying attention to. So we've had a rather in-depth look at the, the details of the story already, but today we're going to see that the same details, as important as they are in the storyline and understanding the character of Samuel, we're going to see how they are also um, important in the, in the greater cycle and unfolding of things. So firstly, if we go back to the beginning of the story, we see that there was a man named Alkana, and he had two wives. The one was very fertile, had many children, and the other, Hannah, was barren. Now, it's very important to note that in verse 6, it says that the Lord had actually closed her womb. So it wasn't just a case of she couldn't have children, the Lord had specifically closed her womb, which means that we can assume that the Lord had a plan here, a purpose here. Because if it was that a barren woman just shows up in the tabernacle praying for a son, and God just decides to give her a son, then that would be one thing. If God had just decided that he wanted to raise up for himself a prophet, then he could just do that. But he specifically closes this woman's womb, and from this woman's womb, his prophet will be born. So obviously we can see whenever there's a barren woman and the Lord is involved, we know their significance. So first thing to take note of. Firstly, this is not in the Bible so that... Um people can g gain enough faith out of the story so that they can pray to have children. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with the story whatsoever. This is not about infertility in any mm. way whatsoever. Because it doesn't say she was infertile. It says that the Lord had closed her womb, exactly. which is different. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, let's go back to chapter 3. Let's go back to chapter 3. Now, the reason we continuously go back to chapter 3 is because everyone knows that within Samuel's walk this might be the most important apart from the fact that he anoints the kings and everything he does is important this is the pivotal moment in his life and we all understand that this is the well-known chapter um, but do we know why it is so important Okay, so again it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Now, this seems quite strange, because he is growing up in the tabernacle. Um, he's serving directly in the sight and together with and under the high priest of Israel. 
honestly. a direct descendant of Aaron. Yeah. Um, you would think that he would be in a position where he would be taught about God. He would get to know God from an early age. Mm. And this, just as a side note, this reflects many times on uh, the reality of um, Christians, people who love God, know God. Uh, in them raising their children, um, they, they kind of expect, well, their children will know mm. God. Their children will know God because they, they're raised in a Christian home, a mm. believing home. Um, and we have seen, we've observed from um, over the years and, and from experience, we know that it still takes a revelation from God Himself, yes. Him revealing it to a person. Um, because most young people or children that are raised in a Christian home, most of them, will either just continue in religion. So Samuel could have continued just serving in the temple. But it very clearly says that he doesn't know God. He didn't know God yet. Yeah. And the Word of God had not been revealed to him. Very interestingly and very importantly, the Word of God had not been revealed to him. And so um, you could grow up in a home, a child can grow up in a home, mm. where... They do Bible study or quiet time, as they call it, every evening. They can be sent to Sunday school and so forth. And they can could have been in situations where the Bible has been read, taught to them, spoken about a million times. Mm. And yet the Word of God uh, mm. could not have been revealed to them yet. God has to reveal His Word. Yes. But most importantly, God has to make Himself known to a person. Now that's one level, but there's actually, it actually goes deeper than that. Samuel represents the Gentiles in the big story of the salvation plan. Um, see, Samuel is not a Levite. He's serving in the temple. He doesn't yet know God. He's representing in this story um, exactly the role of the second son. And this is where we pick up on that dynamic, the second son dynamic. Okay, so we see this dynamic in play. Abraham has two sons. Uh, Ishmael, the first, is not born of the promise. Mm. And so, although God still has purposes with Ishmael throughout the ages, and He will multiply him into nations, um, God's promise is all about uh, Abraham's second son. And the promise is about Abraham's second son, Isaac. Now, we see the same happening with Isaac's children. The firstborn is rejected. The secondborn is loved by God. Yes. Okay. Now, interesting uh, parallels between the two storylines is that, that Isaac loves his first son Esau. Mm -hmm. And this is pretty much the error yeah. that is made by Eli. Eli loves his sons enough that the Lord calls it iniquity that Eli has known. Yes. So Eli himself is not a bad person. He's faithful. 
yeah. a, he serves the Israelites for 40 years. And he judges them. As he judges. He's a judge over Israel for 40 years. Mm. It's significant, 40 years. And we see, I mean, we've looked at the attachment that he has to the Ark of God, because the moment the Ark is taken, that's what kills him. Mm. Um, and we see that yeah. his entire life is faithful. He's in the tabernacle, he's there to serve the people. So it's not that he neglected his duties in that sense. Mm. And yet, when it comes to his sons... Mm. So, so let's start there. Uh, it's significant that he serves as a judge over Israel uh, for a 40-year period. Okay, so although 40 years is a um, representative mm. uh, period, it's a prophetic picture of God's will unfolding from uh, one event to another, from the beginning of the situation to the outcome of the situation. Mm. It also is significant as the unfulfillment of things. You see, so Noah is in the ark. Yes. But only for the perfect period of time until the end of the story, the fulfillment of God's plan. Yahushua still walks the earth for 40 days, but the fulfillment is when he returns to his father. Hmm. We, when we are baptized into Messiah, we die to ourselves and then we remain in the body. And although we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're walking out discipleship and renewal uh, and we are being built in as the body, but it's, it's, it's still the unfulfilled period mm -hmm. um, where uh, we're not released into the fullness of our resurrection yet. Mm -hmm. So Messiah only comes back into his glory when he ascends into heaven. Well, true, yes. Although yes. he was walking in his glorified state on earth, yes. Okay. Um, Noah is still in the process of salvation for the 40... Uh, oh, that's true, because he's in the ark for longer than 40 yeah. days. Yes. Yes. But it that, rains for 40, 40 days. That, that's a period oh, yes, of God's true. work of cleansing and salvation. Oh, I see. But it's that. not like they come out of the ark yeah. after 40 days. Okay, I Okay, now Yahushua goes into the wilderness to be tested for 40, 40 days. days. So he's fasting. So he's not tested for 40 days, but it is a process before yes. the release into his official ministry. Yes. Um, so very it's interesting. very interesting that Eli represents a time of... Uh, unfulfillment. Yes. Uh, After which some fulfillment will... Exactly. And, and in the storyline it's very clear that um, Samuel comes on, onto the scene, uh, mm. scene and he represents kind of the fulfillment of... Uh, the Israelites now have a judge, they have a, a kingly figure and a prophet, mm. a father figure father to lead figure. them and to look yes. after them and somebody that knows the ways of God yes. and declares it. <clears throat> so it brings us back to why wasn't the ways of God declared by Eli to Samuel, or to his sons for that matter? Because yeah. it's very clear that the sons of Eli also doesn't know God. Well, I think this is actually, that's a very interesting point that we can actually now go into at this stage, is the fact that his sons obviously were priests, both, mm. both of them, mm. which means that they were raised in the priesthood, and yet, mm. obviously, they were not raised in the ways of God. Or the knowledge of God. Or the knowledge of God, and without the revelation of God. Which, if we're looking at the, at the 
when we start looking now at the prophetic uh, significance behind all of this, I'm sure we can start to see the, the great significance and weight that this carries. Mm. Is that the, the line of, of priests were raised in the religious side, but not actually in the knowledge of God side. So, are we going to reveal the big reveal now or keep it for a bit later? What do you think? I think we should do it now. I think let's go for it and then we just enjoy it. We just enjoy it. So this is what we're looking at. Eli and his sons represent the priesthood. And remember on Mount Sinai that God calls the Israelites to become a nation of priests. But they don't know God. Even though the, His presence was with them in the wilderness um, in the form of a cloud and a column of fire. Mm. Um, they don't know God. They don't get to know God. Although they believe in God. Mm. <coughs> and although they serve God. Exactly. So, here we see that this is the picture we're looking at. God has gone quiet. Um, it's, remember it says that there was no widespread revelation mm. in those and, days. And the word of the Lord was rare. The word of the Lord was rare. Mm. We're looking at a situation where um, the, the actions, the behavior of Eli's sons point towards them having lost the fear of the Lord. They're not really expecting any interaction from God. They're not thinking that God sees what they're doing. No. They go um, through the rituals, they keep the ordinances, it. but it's not the, the, personal. They're there, but they, they literally have forgotten. So this is what happens. Uh, I think what happened to the Christian world, and that happens so easily in church, is that we get so used, humanity gets so used to the idea of God mm. that we get, we get, it feels like people are still believing in God, but they're used to the idea of God. Because they still go through the rituals, they still go through the ordinances, and yet, like you say, it's more the idea of God than the reality of God. And you can see it in, in churches, uh, people will get, they'll dress up to go to church. They will go faithfully on a Sunday with the whole family to church and yet uh, they would not seem to notice how the things that are done, the way things are done, the way that the word is handled, mm. don't, they don't seem to notice anything wrong with it. The fear of the Lord isn't there. They don't, they don't actually expect. So they think they believe in God. They're used to the idea of God. They don't actually expect God to be scrutinizing uh, their mm. actions, the purity of their service. Mm. God to be actually looking at the heart, the way the Bible says, and the works. Mm. And the way the words of, of men. Um, and we see this picture in Eli's sons. They, they go around as if, well, God is there. God won't care if we take an extra portion of meat or we bend the rules a little bit or we do this or that. We'll get away with it. And this story, firstly, is about the fact that God lets them carry on like this. God doesn't act out straight away. Mm. 
It's a matter of fact, God sends a prophet to warn Eli, and still the judgment doesn't uh, befall them uh, immediately. Mm. There's a period of time where things just still carry on. Yeah. It says that Eli did try to correct them. Yes, but it says that they, their hearts were hardened. They did not turn it because it actually says, because the Lord desired to kill them. This was a time where the word of God had gone uh, quiet. It wasn't alive anymore, it wasn't considered anymore, but mm-hmm. it existed in written form. And um, the Ark of the Covenant was there. Yes. But even though the presence of God was still above the Ark of the Covenant, mm. the reality of a sovereign God um, had changed in the hearts and the minds of people. Mm. And uh, I think they started thinking he's just their God. I think also one should consider, and I think this is why specifically this, this part of the story and this part of the unveiling plays out in this way specifically. Because remember, the, the people of Israel were always going to be dependent on, on the priesthood, reminding them, keeping them in the ways of God, I want to almost use the word convince, but not in that sense. Um, but I mean, if, if you just, for instance, if the priesthood was, go, was carrying on the way that they were, because it says the people were actually complaining against the two sons of, of Eli, mm. saying to them, but it's not supposed to be this way. Mm. And they would actually insist, no, this is the way it is, like it or not, this is the way we're going to do it. And I mean, for, for a nation of people who don't have access truly to the tabernacle, to the holy place, definitely not to the most holy place, they, the part of God that is witnessing to them is the priesthood. And mm. if the priesthood has forgotten, has lost the knowledge of God, the relationship with God, the active serving of God, then how was the nation of Israel ever supposed to kind of keep up the faith? You know what I mean? It says that they, the, the, the people actually actually started despising bringing their offerings because it was something they had to do, mm. but it wasn't something that they were looking forward to. It wasn't a celebration. It wasn't mm. a joyous thing anymore. They despised having to do it. Yes. It, it, it reminds me of uh, how society feels about church in our day. Exactly. People hate giving their money to the church. Mm. They, they complain. Even the ones that are still giving a tithe, people complain about it. It's a burden on the people, but they do it. And there's reasons for it. So there's, there's just parallels that can be drawn. But that's not what we're looking at. We're actually looking at the actual prophetic unfolding mm. in this uh, piece of scripture. And this is what we're looking at. So... God is going to take Eli and his sons, and they're representing uh, Israel, the Jews, and the Jewish priesthood as a nation. And um, Samuel, the one that doesn't know God, that doesn't know the Word of God, the Word of God has not been revealed to him yet, represents the Gentile. And uh, obviously you can go look at what is written in the book of Romans and so forth about this dynamic explaining the um, dispensation of grace and the God bringing the Gentile in 
uh, the scriptures that speak about God removing the separating wall, the middle wall of separation, that was the law, uh, in order to bring the Gentiles in. Uh, Samuel literally represents this picture, and um, God reveals himself to Samuel. And Samuel is not a Levite. He shouldn't be uh, mm. serving in the, the tabernacle. shouldn't be there. And, if it um, wasn't for the specific Samuel. will of God, he should, there's no reason for him to be there. In fact, it almost goes against the rules. It, it is, and it's for that reason. That's why this is in the Bible. And it's done the way that it is. It is a prophetic unfolding of the Gentile Jew situation that's going to unfold. But it's not only that. So Samuel becomes the judge. Mm. Now remember, there's no governmental structure mm. in uh, Israel. Yes. They do have elders. Every city has elders. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's kind of a municipal governance. You want yeah, to give it if you that. want to label it, yeah. But there's no national governance. And the, the people are judged by God-ordained judges. And Samuel becomes this judge. Where is a officially anointed judge over Israel? Interesting. This entire story, two volumes are called Samuel, the book of Samuel. The story begins with Samuel's uh, coming into being who he is, but there's no mention of him be officially becoming the judge. It just says this. This is literally how it happens. It says, um, it says that, uh, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. So here it says that he's established as a prophet. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So God would speak to Samuel. So interesting that he, the Lord revealed himself by the word of the Lord. Now, this tells you this is uh, God's prophetic unfolding. Because God revealed himself to the Gentiles through the word, and the oh, word became <laughs> flesh. So that's why this is written in the way that it is. The way it's that amazing. the Lord... Uh, revealed himself to the Gentiles that to bring the Gentiles in is that he came to the Gentiles uh, by his word and it was the son of God and this mm. is the Lord reveals himself by his word to Samuel and then uh, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel and this is exactly the way that it happens with the Gentiles so uh, the Lord Reveals himself to Samuel by the word, the way that he did to the apostles and with the apostles. And then the word of the apostles came to all the world, the great commissioning. And um, so here literally it's a prophetic unfolding of the new covenant bringing in of the Gentile nations together with uh, the Jews. Um, but it goes further than that. What do you want to add? I just want to add here with the, the word of God dynamic and the word became flesh and 
the word of the God the word of God was revealed to Samuel. Just something interesting that one might never have the chance to notice and just appreciate is um, while it speaks about the prophecy against Eli's household and about his sons. It just mentions in between all the chaos and the mm. mess, verse 26 of chapter 2, it says, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And in the Gospel of Luke, it actually says exactly the same or almost exactly the same wording mm. uh, about Yahushua himself. So in chapter 2, verse 52, it actually says, And Yahushua increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Mm. Now, I don't know if Luke was um, on purpose trying to to write it in the same way, but I just think it's so significant. Something that might seem like such a small thing, but it mm. it just puts so much beauty into the prophetic unveiling here. It's the miracle of the way that the Word of God is written. Certain phrases, certain ideas, um, uh, is the clues that are left all through the Word, like breadcrumbs, literally, um, just to help us understand this story is not randomly there. Mm. Um, so everything is a prophetic, un- continuance of the prophetic unfolding. So Samuel becomes the second son figure. Yes. Because the second son figure represents the Gentiles. The first son, uh, God's first son, is literally um, the image of Adam the first uh, disobeying God. Then, um, the first son, uh, Israel, which basically... Now, this is where we have to explain that uh, Israel doesn't represent... The word Israel doesn't represent the nation. Israel represents Israel, Jacob. Jacob the man. Jacob the man. Whenever the Bible speaks about Israel... Mm. It doesn't refer to the 12 tribes. It represents the one man. Yes, Jacob. Remember, uh, Jacob becomes the prophetic figure of the body of Messiah, and that is when he is laying down with his head on the stone and receives the revelation. Um, And now he's going to have 12 children, but they become the house of Israel. Mm, They are not Israel. They come from Israel. So Israel never, the the mass of people that comes from Jacob never becomes Israel. Although they are referred to as Israel, it's not that that the reference is to all the people. The reference is always to the promise made to the man as a representative of the one man image, figure. So never to the nation as a whole. It's very important because this remains the same throughout the Bible and it remains and it becomes extremely important because we are baptized into Messiah and so uh, what Christians as much as I don't like the word uh, represents that the person of Messiah filled with the Holy Spirit we baptized into him but God the Father loves his son his only begotten son <clears throat> and all that he does is done for the son and all that he does is done through the Son, and the inheritance is, is the Son's. And so, although we are multitude, mm. it, it's, this is why it's very important to understand that the multitude never becomes Israel. Uh, they become the house of Israel, the sons of Israel, mm. but Israel is Israel, yes. the one man. Okay, now, 
This is very important to understand that the priesthood being um, replaced. Yes. This is the key. Being um, replaced. Replaced. And this is so just, this is why we started the story and continuously come back to chapter 3. Why is it so significant that God is going to use this boy who shouldn't actually be there where he is serving the tabernacle because he's not a Levite? Why is God going to impart this knowledge to him, this word of his will to this boy to confirm, to witness to the priesthood, the high priest that his house will no longer continue? And then basically takes on the role of high priest without ever, he will never be able to become high priest because he's not from the line of Aaron. Mm. So it seems like such a, a weird thing for God to do because we see that no one is, when there's important sacrifices or feasts, Samuel is the prophet, Samuel is the man people wait for to come and bring the sacrifice, to pray to God. He's going to, as a judge, he's going to lead the people in the ways of God. And yet, he will never be able to be God's high priest just because of his, his bloodline. But why is this so significant? Why does God use this boy to confirm the message to the priesthood and then in some way replace Eli, yet not replacing the priesthood? Because Eli's... Family remains in the possession of the priesthood, even if when exactly. Eli and his sons are dead. Yes. Up until the days of uh, Abiata, when uh, Solomon uh, fires him. So, now we have a priestly figure yes. that is not confined or bound to the tabernacle. And this is where we see this beautiful picture where... It's a nice picture when it says that Hannah came to the temple and, and Eli was sitting on his bench at the entrance of the tabernacle. What a moment. You go and there's a direct descendant of Aaron. The high priest. The high priest sitting by the entrance of the tabernacle. I mean, you could almost not get a more beautiful, religious, early <laughs> perfect picture. Uh, everybody wants that picture. Yeah. And here you have Samuel. He's not serving in the temple anymore. Um, he's moving among the people. He's going from place to place. The word of God um, is loosed from the temple and the priesthood um, for a very short period of time in the form of Samuel because it's a prophetic unfolding of what would happen um, uh, after the temple is destroyed. Um, after the moment, actually, of uh, Messiah dying on the cross and the priesthood is cancelled. Mm -hmm. But this is a picture of... Uh, the high priest was, was at the entrance of the tabernacle. Samuel is where the Lord wants him to be. Yes. Where Samuel goes, the word of God goes. The will of God is done. The, um, the, the, the priesthood... Uh, he's not officially the priesthood, but he's representing it. Everybody's looking exactly. at him as the high priest. I think what's important to just point out is he is not representing the Levitical priesthood. Mm. And yet, for all intents and purposes, he is serving as God's priest. So I'm, I'm sure we can all see the connection there. So it's <laughs> that uh, the, lie, the, the priestly line of Melchizedek, uh, where Messiah becomes high priest, and he becomes high priest and he is not a Levite. He's mm. from the line of Judah. And he uh, replaces the priesthood. Yes. And then 
we are called to become the priesthood Gentiles. Um, and this is God's ultimate plan is we become in Messiah, we become the priesthood and then there's the fivefold ministry that especially becomes mm. the Levites on earth um, under the new covenant and the uh, temple of God is represented by the body and the body is moving out there among the people in the world. Yes. Um, this goes even further than this. So why two women? Why two women? So let's go back, back to the beginning of the story and let's just look at what is hidden here. Why, mm. why make such a fuss about Hannah? Yeah. So the man Elkanah has two wives. The one is fertile, has many children. The other, the Lord has closed her womb. But then we see something interesting. It says, And whenever, this is in chapter 1 verse 4, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. We want to look at that now, or shall we come back? Let's to firstly talk about why she had to be okay. barren. See, up until the moment that the Holy Spirit is poured out on Cornelius's house, yes. Up until that moment, the Gentiles, spiritually, according to the faith, has to be barren. Yeah, they cannot cannot bear spiritual fruit. It's actually impossible. We know the covenant was offered to, to the Jews. Covenant is not offered to the Gentiles. So that's sort of a gray area. But as far as just biblical knowledge goes, it, they could not bear spiritual fruit. So they were barren. So we have this picture very specifically for that reason. So it's always, an, it's always been an answer, yes, but if, if salvation was only offered to to the Jews then and the Gentiles are only brought in uh, to the possibility of salvation uh, after Messiah's resurrection mm. uh, but actually practically after the Holy Spirit is poured yes. out on Cornelius's house um, why is it so unfair? What about all the Gentiles that was the yeah. same seed, the same bloodlines? What about them all that time? Why would they just be lost? That's the barrenness in exactly. the story. Until the moment that God opens the womb. Exactly. It's up to Him. And He opens the womb for the son that He wanted. And now... I promise. That's it. Mm. So, so she's not coming and asking God for a son. And God decides, okay, I'll give her a son. This is God's will. Remember, we looked, at, we looked at this whole dynamic. God closes a womb. Now uh, this lady comes to the tabernacle to pray to God. And we've now looked at the prophetic or the significance that it cannot be, especially with her attitude, the way she carries herself and the way she petitions the Lord for a son. It cannot be that it was just that she just wanted a child, wanted offspring, wanted a male child so that she can have a lineage and an inheritance for her husband. We, we've looked at this. It could not be that. 
Mm. And we did come to the conclusion that it must have been the Holy Spirit that led her to the tabernacle to pray this prayer for the purposes of God. But now, if we look at not just specifically how it would play out in the time that it happens, but across time, the spiritual and prophetic mm. significance that it carries, we understand why it is so wonderful and miraculous that the Holy Spirit or that God had moved her in such a way, mm. specifically praying this type of prayer, her attitude, her fortitude, her, her uh, demeanor mm. within this process. And then Eli, the priest, he, he blesses <laughs> her and tells her, the Lord has granted your request. Now, what is that for? This is a prophetic uh, for showing that it was the Hebrew prophets that confirmed and prophesied that the Gentiles would come in and that God would um, have an inheritance among the Gentiles. Now, although the Hebraic people, the, the Hebrews, hated that idea, rejected that idea, and actually it was part of the reason why they crucified the Lord, mm. and then continued to persecute the disciples and the apostles for that reason, mm. Because they hated the idea, it couldn't be that the Gentiles would be brought into covenant. Um, it was the uh, Hebrew prophets yes. that released these words, that blessed in reality yes. that we shouldn't be blessed. And um, so that's that's what Eli is doing. He doesn't even know what he's doing here. I think just to get back to the to the barrenness and the picture we're looking at, something else that might be overlooked which I think just brings everything so nicely together in this beginning part of the story, is that it says that Hannah went into the tabernacle and prayed, but it says that she didn't pray aloud. She prayed in her heart and only her lips moved. Mm -hmm. And then it actually says that Eli thought that she was drunk with, mm -hmm. in just looking. It says he actually looked at her and thought that she was drunk because of the way that she was mm -hmm. praying. And then actually says to her, you know, it's time to put the wine away. And mm. she says, no, I'm, I'm not drunk. I'm actually just pouring out my heart to the Lord. Which takes us exactly smack bang to the moment where the Holy Spirit is actually poured out. Mm. The people start speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, and the people think they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Mm. And I think just with the barrenness the Holy Spirit's interaction to bring her to this place where the will of God can be set in motion. And mm. then this whole, we know the, 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 the significance that the infilling of the Holy Spirit carries here in this story, but then the fact that Hannah is actually perceived in the same way that the, that the disciples mm. would be perceived on the day of Pentecost. And she's praying quietly, um, which is uncommon uh, for them because they would wail and they would mm. uh, bring Lamenting. petitions yeah. loudly. But this is that in spirit and truth after yes. such the Father seeks. So now, we're starting to see that this is actually just a very significant picture. But Samuel, it goes further. Samuel now not just becomes a priestly figure. He's also going to fulfill the entire uh, New Covenant promise uh, in, in, with unofficially. He becomes the judge yes. over um, the people. And the judge is in the position of the king at that stage. So he's priest, prophet, and king. 
And this explains the authority by which he walks. None of the other apostles are received and responded to by the people. You mean um, judges. With, uh, or the, uh, sorry, the judges. <laughs> None of them are, uh, are uh, the people don't respond to them in this way. Mm. Um, even the, 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 the most impressive of the other prophets are disrespected by the people. Yet when he w- comes walking toward the town, the elders, they tremble, tremble and, and they come on and, and they're scared of his arrival. Yeah. Why, why are you coming out of season? <laughs> this guy that is not even officially, um, yeah. although everybody knows he's God's prophet, prophet and judge, he rebukes the king. Rebukes the king. And the king even knows not to go against his word. He, the king, the king that is anointed, does not have authority over Samuel. Samuel remains the highest authority. And that's because of this prophetic foreshadowing, the unfolding of this new covenantal position of the body of Messiah as king, priest and prophet. And it's very important to now understand that we are to be a prophetic people. Uh, God revealed himself, Yahweh revealed himself through his word to Samuel. This is very important to understand. Although he spoke to Samuel, showed Samuel things, led Samuel, he revealed himself to Samuel and the word came to the people through Samuel. And this is who the church in our day, the body of Messiah, is supposed to be. Now, he doesn't use violence or military might or any of those influences against the people. He Um, doesn't even use miracles. None of that. Once he he calls a storm into being, that's that's it. Um, But we do see something. Can we go to the chopping up? Yes. The hacking in pieces. This is chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Mm. Mm. You want to? Yes, go for it. Read the part where he hacks Mm. him. Okay. Uh, Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. Sorry, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm reading from verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Here we see another very important lesson that we can glean from this prophetic figure representing the body of Messiah. And if we want to understand what the church should become and the uh, birth, the origin, the purpose, the calling, the releasing, the mandate uh, of a prophetic people, this is one of those parts of his life that we cannot ignore. Mm. Um, When it came to the enemy um, of the people of God and the kingdom of God, when it comes to that which has been rejected, and especially because the, uh, Yahweh himself gave instruction mm. regarding this, um, 
an old man, he's already an old man. Yeah. This happens after the people came to him and said, you are now too old <laughs> to judge getting, us. Well, they're saying you're getting old and the idea is you might die soon and your sons aren't exactly mm. you. So we need a king. They're basically saying that we need a king because you're too old now. You, you're not, and, you might and this kick off that, tomorrow. This old guy grabs a sword <laughs> yeah. and hacks this king to pieces. He's Without man, batting an eye. He's a man of action. He's mm. not, not just a man of the word of God. He's a man of action. He's going to do what needs to be done. Exactly. And if he needs to do it, he'll do it himself. Yes. Um, although he loves Saul, he's not going to compromise for not, Saul's sake. Not, yeah. Uh, very important. This man, Samuel, represents literally the body. And he's a lone figure. Mm. Uh, among the yeah. entire nation of the Jews. He loves them, he fathers them, he ministers to them, but he almost seems like he's not a Jew in mm. the way that he's just different, so different from them. Uh, just a figure that is very much connected to the to the nation though, very much a father yes. figure, not a lone figure. Seems, seems se- separated mm. and yet more involved than most others. Mm. in leadership positions. Now let's look at the significance of his father. Okay, so we've looked now at his mother and we keep coming back to this question or keep throwing in there, okay, the, but he's not from the line of Levi, he's, he's from the wrong bloodline. So let's look a bit at, uh, at his father. So his father, Elkanah, says was an Ephraimite. Ephraimite. Now, before we go into more of that, I just want to point out something that happens here uh, when after Samuel is born, because one might overlook Alkana and forget that Samuel actually is Alkana's son. So Alkana couldn't have just been nobody. Mm. Um, so once Samuel is born, remember Hannah doesn't take him immediately to Eli. She says she's going to wean him first. So. The rest of them can go up to the feast. She'll go once the child is weaned. And then once this happens in verse 23, we see Elkanah has an interesting response, which I just is, I think is important to just read. Um, chapter 1, verse 23. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And I think that's such a significant mm. Mm. moment and response in the story because one might overlook this man and yet we see that he he must have had some form of if either this was the holy spirit confirming through him or he must have had some revelation but that they are involved in the plan of god now because he doesn't say may the lord establish your your word he says because remember hannah asked for the son Mm. he actually says only let the lord establish his word so he's prophesying. Literally. Okay, so Alkana. Okay. So Alkana the Ephraimite. Now, let's get into this study. Because Ephraim seems like such a random tribe for Samuel to come from. If he had come from Judah, I think that would have been like a mm. significant, you know, from the same line as what the Lord mm. would stem from. But I mean, that would have been weird because he has to win David and so on. But. Ephraim, out of all the tribes, just seemed a funny one. So let's start looking a bit at this and see the significance that it holds. So, 
First of all, Ephraim is one of the two sons of Joseph. So Joseph, one of the 12 sons, the favorite son of Jacob, sent to Egypt. And while he is in Egypt, he has two sons. He has Manasseh, the oldest, and Ephraim, the younger. Which already should start sounding interesting in terms of the storyline because obviously they are not pure, pure-blooded Jews from the line of Abraham. They actually are now intermixed with, with Egyptians. Um, but so the first significant piece of scripture we can read in terms of Ephraim is actually in Genesis chapter 48. And you'll see why this is so significant. So we can read from this from about verse 13, I'll just give you some background. So, uh, Jacob calls Joseph to himself because he's, a, he's very old and he's about to die. And uh, so he calls Joseph to himself so that he can bless him. And Joseph brings with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then we see from verse 13, it says, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, and Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel, being Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me, All my life long, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What a, what a (laughs) blessing. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it, From Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, and Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said to Ephraim, before Manasseh. Mm. How spectacular. So looking at the the firstborn, second son dynamic, we already see this playing off here as well. So it went with through Abraham with Ishmael and Isaac went through Isaac between Jacob and Esau and then went through Jacob actually to skipping a generation but then going to the two outlaw sons Mm. bringing them in and then applying the the first son second son dynamic to them i think this is so so spectacular um so then this is why why is this uh, we might say well they have ham's bloodline um how can they be blessed? This, this is what um, Ephraim and Manasseh represents. Yes. Is that the, the Yafeth, as well as the Shem seed, will, some of the seed will interbreed yes. with the seed of Ishmael, of Ham, and with Esau. Mm. 
Um, but God, in His great power and wisdom, is yeah. literally distilling the, the God seed out of the mixture of bloodlines. Yes. And this is why this is significant, uh, and then of course the fact that he blesses the second son, and Jacob is doing this for no apparent reason. There's no practical reason at that yeah, moment why, for him to do this. Why should it matter? Um, and you could say, well, it's just about because their direct descendant is going to be. This is the second son dynamic, and this is so important for us as Gentiles because it helps us understand that we're not. Second rate, uh, God later decided to save us as well. <laughs> Thank um, goodness, we're the, so indebted. The, the, you know, the, the the viewpoint of the Jews being God's chosen people, and I'm not saying that they were not. No, but yeah. we we understand it in light of Jacob, be representing the body, and. He works with the Jews, and there's a love for the Jews, but this was never the salvation plan. Mm. The salvation plan was the same from the beginning to the end, and this is very important that we can see this, so that we can understand that God's plan has always been the same. It's not an amended plan. The Jews didn't want him, so God went like, well, I'm going to have to be happy with the Gentiles now. Let's see <laughs> who we can get out of the, yeah. out of the nations. Let's this try and is not some. Yeah. You know, this is this is we are his chosen beloved children, whom yes. he foreknew. Yes, and that's just it. And this is, is so clearly portrayed in this picture. So this is where we see. Okay, there's got to be something special about Ephraim. Then there's got to be. So now I'm going to jump and skip ahead in the story, um, back to roundabout where we are. So. Uh, you'll all remember that in the unfolding of the story of the kings of Israel, rather soon, the kingdom actually splits. Mm. So during Solomon's son's reign, so the grandson of King David, um, we're going to quickly look at the storyline now, but, but there's an event and the kingdom splits. So it becomes the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And now... Um, very interesting to note, in 1 Kings chapter 11, I'm probably just going to reference some of the scriptures and you can go read it mm. at ease in your own time because it's really very interesting and chock and block full of, of treasures. Um, so the first scripture reference you can go look at here is 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26. You can read straight through to the end and then you can go read chapter 12 as well. So this tells us about how the kingdom actually split um, why it happened, how it happened. But interestingly enough, you'll see that the man who ends up becoming the first king of Israel when the kingdom sp split, so we know that the line of David remains king over, or the, remains in the kingly role uh, over the kingdom of Judah, uh, which encompasses the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and then the rest of the tribes form the kingdom of Israel. And the first man who becomes king over this kingdom of the ten tribes is an Ephraimite. Can you believe it? And it's not just random. It's not like the people just show up and go, who's the best here? Let's, you know, we need a king. Who do we pick? Um, it's actually prophesied. So before the kingdom splits, during the reign of Solomon, it is prophesied to a man, Yeruboam, hmm. 
who is serving under King Solomon, and actually a, a prophet comes to him and says to him, this is what the Lord is going to do, and you're going to become king over Israel. Um, and so we know how the rest of that story works out, but there we see that's significant. Who would have thought? Ephraim. Um, then from there, as we see, because we know that unfortunately the kingdom of Israel falls into disrepute much faster than the kingdom of Judah, um, and very soon we see that actually the kingdom of Israel is no longer referred to the kingdom of, or not no longer referred to, but uh, in prophecy when there's great you know, prophetic reference to the kingdom of Israel, it actually oftentimes later it becomes, uh, the reference becomes Ephraim. It, it, uh, God or the prophets start referring to that part of the kingdom as the kingdom of Ephraim or, or Ephraim. Which is actually very, very interesting. So what actually ends up happening is as the line of King David or as the, the line of Judah becomes the royal bloodline in the kingdom of Judah, Ephraim actually becomes the noble or royal bloodline in the kingdom of Israel. So, so they become almost the representative, the main representative of the ten tribes. Who would have thought? Can, okay. can I interject yes, here regarding yes, just again the parallels uh, between of what happens here and so Ephraim will or, or the ten uh, tribes uh, are now called Israel. Very interesting that uh, the promise was was made to to Abraham and his descendants, the seed, mm. um, and that is that promise made to the seed that is going to go through Judah mm. all the way through to Messiah mm. and this becomes the house now of Judah uh, and together with uh, Ju the, the tribe of Judah there's, there's of course the tribe of Benjamin but that which was Israel uh, now we tend to think of the Jews as Israel mm. but actually this is the opposite that happens that Part of the twelve sons of Jacob, mm. and God calls Jacob Israel, they remain Israel now, separate yes. from the bloodline of Messiah. Yes. This represents the separation for, of the uh, Jewish people from Messiah himself. Wow. Actually. So Jacob, in essence, is separated from Messiah. Oh. Mm. Um, and this is what that represents. Um, the same way that uh, Joseph was, was, was separated from the rest mm. of Jacob um, so that he could become the hope of Jacob mm. um, when, when the other brothers plus, plus uh, Jacob himself uh, was in dire straits God had separated through yeah. terrible uh, actions and circumstances separated Joseph so that wow. Joseph separated from mm. the Jews, the other part of Israel, and it, and 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 Joseph is taken into the the the, the non-believing Ham area. He's going to live behind enemy lines. <laughs> he has to go live in a place where there's idol worship and so forth, so that there can be a, a, a salvation. Mm. Of the rest of his siblings, that is the the promise. They exactly. they're carrying the promise. That's Jacob. Now Joseph represents this um, picture, 
Ephraim is going to come to represent the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are separated from the land of Israel and the priesthood and the other things eventually. But they become the hope because it's the Gentiles that takes the gospel and the good news of who the Messiah truly is and God's salvation but back to the house of Judah and um, the rest of them. So this separation, so the ten tribes very quickly fall into idol worship. They start losing the knowledge of God and they become the the ten lost tribes. And they are identified as Ephraim. Because they, the Ephraimites or the, the, the ten other nations will be lost, uh, scattered among the nations. And remember, especially the important part of that is your faith. Yes. <coughs> As one of the three, th- three sons of uh, Noah and uh, the lost tribes, they become what is now brought back by God. They become the Gentiles that are brought back into covenant. Mm. And so the, just... Mm significant how God actually separates them. But what I want to emphasize is that the part that is separated from the bloodline of Messiah is Israel. They become the kingdom of Israel. I know that's hugely significant. Hugely significant. So this represents literally... But we see that in a few instances in a way that it plays out. But I mean in this dynamic it plays out quite explicitly... But even in in the instance that we're looking at with with the story of Samuel and the priesthood becoming kind of separated in Samuel as this picture of the Gentiles becoming God's man. Mm. Um, So we see this actually, this prophetic unfolding through a few stories Mm. in in the Bible. But but I mean, Mm. that dynamic is definitely one of the most... It's maybe worth just mentioning that even in the story of King David, there's a little unfolding, a smaller unfolding of where he as a Messiah figure Mm. comes and reunites the two houses again. Yes, he does. Um, so, so even if you look at how that storyline relates between the ten tribes and mm. the house of Judah, because he and, first um, becomes Benjamin. king over some of the tribes, and then later becomes king over the rest of the tribes, and then the uh, the, that again is a small prophetic unfolding of how in Messiah, mm. uh, the uh, Jacob is, is is redeemed again. Yes. But anyways, okay, let's move on to okay, so. Uh, I'm just quickly going to refer to one or two instances, but maybe you can you can just go read. So, for instance, Psalm 78 uh, is a reference to the whole Israel is no longer referred to as Israel, but actually as to refer to as Ephraim. So, Psalm 78, you can go look through the Book of Hosea, big time there. Uh, some parts of Haggai, even. Do you have um, any Hosea scriptures? Yes, uh, Hosea. Man, we can look at chapter. I don't know. All through the book. Okay, okay. Um, but I can re- tell you, go look at chapter 4, verse 17 to 19. Go look through chapter 5, it's all there. Chapter 6, chapter 7. But literally, almost in all the chapters, you'll just see this dynamic. So don't get caught up in the prophetic thing. Just go look at the significance of Israel being referred to as Ephraim. Mm. Um, then one place I'd like to refer to, which I think is so interesting in this Gentile dynamic that we see. So, there comes a time, remember, when with the split of the kingdoms and the kings that sometimes serve God and sometimes do not, um, they actually lose the law of God. 
So there's a time when when the book of the law is rediscovered and they hold a feast, but that's in the time of the king Josiah. Before that, uh, during the reign of of Hezekiah, uh, we see that yes, we see that um, during the reign of Hezekiah they reinstate the Passover for the first time. So they've actually lost the feast of the Passover, and uh, and now they reinstate it, but. When they discover it, it's actually during the wrong time of the year. So they can't actually, they're not supposed to have the feast when they're supposed there. But because they've rediscovered it and it's so significant, they decide they're going to have the feast anyway. But now because it's all so sudden, they also, uh, unfortunately, the priests and the Levites have not consecrated themselves or sanctified themselves the way that they were supposed to. So if we go to uh, 2 Chronicles, you can go read chapter 30. There's an interesting part here from, from verse 17. So they, they, when the king decides they're going to have the, the feast of Passover, he sends out riders and messengers into all the kingdoms, both Judah and Israel, to say, you know, we're going to do this again. It would be good if everyone can join. Some of the people laugh at them. Some people send them away. They don't all come. But then we see from verse 17, it says, For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves, Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And I just think, obviously, this picture of the Gentiles, contrary to the law, by grace, being able to partake in the feast and all of that, this is just such a beautiful picture of, of how that works. Um, and then interestingly enough, chapter 31, verse 1, after this they ride out and they go break down all kinds of idols and high places and things. And it says, now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars. From all, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Hmm. What are the odds that it's specifically, so the kingdom of Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin, and then from the other kingdom would have been Ephraim and Manasseh, who go out and, and go do this. And I think that's really great. Um, then, I'm not going to read it, but go look at Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a well-known chapter in Jeremiah. Um, you'll see that there also is reference made to specifically Ephraim as Israel. And interestingly enough, because it is a well-known chapter, if you just look at the sequence of how it's prophesied in terms of Ephraim, and then you'll see that prophecy kind of ends, and then when you turn the page, oh, my word, it's the prophecy of the fulfilled new covenant, right there in the same chapter. So, so the dynamic you can go meditate on and explore, but um, I'm sure we can all make the connections there. But I really want to get to the, to the, the high point of the Ephraim um, uh, significance. Yeah. So, let's all go together to 1 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 20 to 27. 
uh, you'll see the heading reads, it's, it's the first of Chronicles, and they look at all the, the family lines of the 12 sons, and this reads the family of Ephraim. So the sons of Ephraim were Shuthela, Bered his son, Tahath his son, Elada his son, Tahath his son, Zabad his son, Shuthela his son, and Ezer and Eliad. The men of Gath who were born in that land killed them because they came down to take away their cattle. Then Ephraim, their father, mourned many days, and his brethren came to comfort him. And when he went into his wife, she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Berea, because tragedy had come upon his house. Now his daughter was Shera, who built Lohan, Upper Beth Horon, and Uzin Shera. And Repha was his son, as well as Reshef, and Tila his son, Tahan his son, Laadan his son, Amud his son, Elishama his son, Nun, his son, and Joshua, his son. So, lo and behold, let's go back to Numbers chapter 18. And we go straight to verse... Oh, wait, I'm in the wrong chapter. Let's go straight to Numbers chapter 13. And we go straight to verse um, 8. And it says, from the tribe of Ephraim, because remember when they sent the spies into Canaan, they picked one man from each tribe to, as a spy to go into the promised land. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. And then we see in verse 16, it says, uh, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Yahushua. Ha 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 ha. Okay, but then it doesn't end there because in verse 6 it says, From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Yefune. I don't know if I said that right. But that means that the two men who are going to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land are not just Joshua and Caleb. No, they are Ephraim and Judah leading the people of God into the promised land. This is so spectacular because Yahushua is from the line of Judah, but now this Yahushua is from the line of Ephraim, representing the Gentiles and the Jews and Gentiles. And as if that wasn't enough of a revelation and confirmation of God's purposes and plan, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37 and just, I mean, while we're here, we might as well just exploit it. Um... So Ezekiel chapter 37, and we're going to read together from verse 15. I'll just take a look at this. This is really something. Okay, uh, from verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, 
Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Oh, you can go just finish up the chapter, but I mean, we just wanted to look at that piece as well, because, yeah, the significance, I think, is just really beautiful. Mm, well done. This actually um, proves the fact that uh, the Gentiles mm. uh, become rep represented by Ephraim. So not only the ten tribes that yeah. are lost, but all the hangers-on, which yes. would be all the descendants of um, your faith. Yeah. So this becomes significant. Now, the prophecy says that God will bring them back, make them one nation. Yes. Now, a lot of people insist that this happened when um, the geographical area mm. that is now Israel was given back to the people that call themselves the Israelites. How do we know that it cannot be that that was the fulfillment of that piece of scripture, the prophecy? Because what happened is, they did come, uh, is, uh, Jews from all over the world mm -hmm. did come back to the geographical area that is called Israel. Mm -hmm. They are no longer called divided into two houses. Yes, within Israel. Yes. Yes. But how do we know that the prophecy is not fulfilled? Because it very clearly says that God will cause them to put away their idols. Exactly. And look, let's face it. Um, the Jews have never in the history, in their worst state they were in, have never been more... Um, of an idol-worshipping nation than they are today. They might have returned to the geographical area, mm. but the fact of the matter is that the Jews has all but, and there's people out there that still think that yeah. there's a portion of the Jews that are serving God and the rabbis know the Torah and they love mm. God, and people are under this impression mm. that God's people still loves God. Now, the Jews have forsaken the ways of God. Yeah. So it's very important to understand that just for the fact that it says that they will put away their idols from them and that God will again be their God. Mm. This uh, is proof that from the moment that the Jews as we know them today mm. were restored to the geographical area, uh, that was not the fulfilling of this of this prophecy at all. Mm. So some might hold that um, out of the ten tribes, some of the people that was in the dispersion, the Jews mm. that was in the dispersion, were restored to the land. Mm. And this is true. Mm. So some of the ten tribes that is now called Ephraim might have been restored to the land. Now, there's the reality that they consider the ten tribes still to be lost. Mm. But whether it's the house of Israel or the house of Judah, 
Jews went out into the, to the world, and, and although they might have retained um, some knowledge of who they are, and for miraculously they, they, Jews know more or less where they fit in and that mm. they are Jewish, mm. um, they, they have still been assimilated yes. to some degree in, in other bloodlines, and the bloodlines are mixed. Yeah. So true. the fact that they have not returned, the only way to return to God is to return to the entire Torah and the prophets. Yes. And remember that the function of the, the prophets were to prophesy Messiah. Exactly. To confirm God's will and His unfolding plan. Yeah. And this they have not restored and they have not returned to this. So there's much idol worship yes. in the land of Israel. Yes. Um, it's a matter of fact, I don't think there's a country on earth that is more in transgression yeah. when it comes to God's ways and word than the Jews because they're the ones that know His word. Exactly. They don't really have an excuse almost, if you want to put it that way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... So just to make sure, but carry on with that prophecy. Yeah, so I'm just going to, in in light of Mm. what you've now added, this definitely just confirms that. So let's continue. We finished chapter 37 from verse 24. Um, Or actually, I'll just pick it up again at verse 23. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, Sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. How beautiful is that? It's beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. It's wonderful from our perspective, and um, mm. we have we surely not have, we don't have full understanding mm. or revelation on all the aspects of it. Um, but I think from the perspective of us understanding the unfolding of the plan, Sure. Uh, the thousand year reign and especially with the one man body mm. uh, being mm. being the house of Jacob uh, it's a matter of fact being Jacob himself and um, I think from that perspective it's, yeah. it's even more beautiful to us that understand that we're looking forward to to that yes. but um, it's also a piece of scripture that's caused a lot of confusion. Oh, I'm sure. I'm a lot sure. of confusion in the Christian church, a lot yeah. of confusion uh, for the Jews. Mm. And uh, there's a whole movement that now, out of those prophecies, think that God is going to rebuild His temple. Mm. 
before the return of the Lord, mm. and that will be the sanctuary of God in yeah, our midst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they expect God to restore the Jews, the, the, the Hebrew people, mm. um, before the re- re- return of, of Messiah. Okay. Now, yeah, yeah. they probably won't live to be disappointed, but certainly there's going to be a lot of disappointment. Mm. Um, now, obviously, King David is not going to return. <laughs> that would have been impressive, but... Uh... <laughs> and we could say that one of his descendants are going to sit on the throne. Um, which which means... would also be true if we take into account the truth. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, for that to happen, it will probably... Uh, Intel a lot of ch- uh, uh, political oh, yes, changes. Definitely. And so the only thing that we can understand, or only way that we can understand it at this moment, is it has to be the return of Messiah himself. Um, otherwise, that would mean that Israel has to become a kingdom again. Mm, before the return. The priesthood has to be restored, yeah, so the entire just, nation will have to change in form and so yeah. forth. And um, we're not saying this cannot happen, we're just saying mm. that it doesn't line up with the rest yeah. of the book of Revelation. Unlikely and the that it will happen that way, yeah. The plan. yeah. So, because that would mean that if that had to happen, mm. then when the two witnesses are on earth, it doesn't make sense that the, the witnesses are in, 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 in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is called Babylon. Yeah. Two uh, prophetic mm. interpretations just cannot exist yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Okay, so, but the important thing is Ephraim represents Ephraim the one stick. And Judah, and the, the house other. of Judah. And there we have the, the covenant of peace that's an everlasting covenant. One house, one people, one nation, one God. Beautiful, beautiful. We, we'll probably in the future come back to this piece of scripture as a yeah. key piece of scripture in the Bible. Let's have a look at some of the uh, some more unfolding. Mm. Okay, so obviously, just so this was great. Do you want to just with that then being <laughs> is there any part of the Ephraim revelation because that's a big, big part? No, of the I mean, there are a few more scriptures that one could go read, but I mean, you can go Google or do a search on your Bible app just for Ephraim and you can go read the, the scripture references. You'll see it's. It's actually quite obvious once once one is aware of the the mystery significance um, in the prophetic picture of Ephraim and that Ephraim carries, it's actually really spectacular to just do a study. So you can go look again at the scriptures that we've read and just go do a search on some more Ephraim scriptures. You'll see it's actually... I don't, one doesn't know that you could have missed it and yet it's not something that you think of doing because it seems so... I don't know, slightly unimportant in the greater scheme. One wouldn't go do a study of Ephraim, and yet um, it is it is really very a very nice and fun study to do. So I would recommend, it, since we are busy with this study, and you, if you have time, just do yourself a favor and go look at some of that. But um, so just to bring it back, so so the reason we looked at Ephraim, the significance of Ephraim, is because Samuel Samuel is an Ephraimite. His father was an Ephraimite. And um, and uh, since we said he is in his story and in, in his life is representing the Gentiles, we looked at his heritage, his bloodline, and actually saw that his entire bloodline 
represent the Gentiles. So, so it's really just magnificent. Maybe something I could add that could lead us just into another one of the prophetic unfoldings is that, interestingly enough, um, <clears throat> so Samuel obviously lives in Rama. His father came from Rama, and Rama is in the territory of Ephraim. But also in Ephraim is actually Shiloh and later on Bethel. Mm. So the significant kind of worship areas before, before Jerusalem becomes the main place because Jerusalem in the beginning doesn't belong to them. Um, actually, all the spiritual kind of high places and important places um, is also part of the territory of Ephraim, which I yeah. just think is, is rather interesting. So something we might look at at this stage is um, we mentioned in one of the earlier sessions the, the route that Samuel takes when he travels. Mm through while judging uh, the people. So it says that he followed a specific route every year. And um, I think it's worth just looking at that. So in 1 Samuel chapter 7, from verse 15, it says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah. For his home was there. Therefore he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, um, <clears throat> Gilgal, we, we have looked at some of these places in the past, but if we look at Gilgal, Gilgal initially in its, in its word form, a Gilgal is not actually a place, it is a name of a, of a thing. <laughs> so, so you can have a Gilgal here and a Gilgal there and a Gilgal there. Mm. Um, it's, not, it's not just the name of a place like Cape Town or Johannesburg. Mm. Okay. So um, a Gilgal is actually a structure that you build with rocks. Mm. And Gilgal, they called the place Gilgal is actually where they come through the River Jordan. Um, once they come into the promised land. And there, remember, they set up the 12 stones as a remembrance and a memorial to the fact that they came through the, the river. And then they actually named that place Gilgal. Mm. Okay, so that's one of the places that, that Samuel returns to every year. Then the second one we can look at is Mitzpah. Now Mitzpah, interestingly enough, was... Um, so also a thing rather than a place. So, so although they named a place according to this thing, the word itself is actually not, a, not primarily a reference to a place. So a mitzvah is actually a watchtower made of stone. So a watchtower that they would build from stone. And then Bethel, we've looked at before. So Bethel is a place, but Bethel is significant because it is the place where Jacob lies with his head on the rock. So we have three places here that specifically have reference to, to a rock that's kind of named after the rock and the significance is the, the rock. So we have Bethel, the rock with Jacob's head, Gilgal, the stone structure, and Mitzpah, the watchtower. And those are the three places that Samuel traveled to every year in, on a circuit. And then it even says that, but he always returns to Ramah, because his home was there, and then it also says there he built an altar to the Lord. So one could even kind of add that into the mix. So we see much the same as we know that Abraham would travel on a certain route um, through the seasons, returning from place to place. And everywhere he would return, there would be an altar that he had built to the Lord, and he would mm. sacrifice to the Lord on that altar. 
And so we can even see a kind of parallel with that. I don't know if you want to expand on that anymore. Mm. I think it's significant in uh, several ways. Firstly, it's the three um, places in the promised land where uh, Samuel as a... So firstly, to be a judge, mm. you represent literally the word of God. Mm. You, repre you represent, or he would represent the authority and um, dominion, the rule mm. of God on earth. Yes. So he would represent the eternal kingdom yeah. of heaven on That's earth. Amazing. But he would represent it as a, a judge. Now, what does a judge do? A judge divides the word and divides truth from um, the lie, mm. uh, justice from injustice. Mm. He would divide unto the person, a person, people would bring uh, legal matters to him. He would divide the portion unto the person that needed to be recompensed. Mm. Um, so the separation concept of the Holy Spirit would come very strongly through the the judge person yes. personage, yes. and this is why he would uh, do a circular route between the rocks. So, firstly, when Jacob uh, lies on with his head on the rock, it's a singular rock. Yes, and yes. this is the original rock. So, the rock that the builders rejected, yes, becomes the capstone or the cornerstone. Yes. Now. Um, this is uh, a prophetic picture of all the living rocks yes. will come uh, be cut. So cut. Uh, if we look at the book of Daniel, the rock cut without hands, yes, the yes. stone cut without hands, that becomes what is used to build the house. Mm. This is this this is a prophetic uh, for foreshadowing of the fact that Yahushua is one. Yes. Uh, out of him will come the entire house. But now, why the, these places become so important is that uh, God tells the Israelites to, as they come through the Jordan, mm. to take rocks from the bottom of the yes. water, which would represent baptism, okay. and then bring it out of the um, riverbed yes. uh, into the promised land. And then pile twelve rocks on top of one another. Now this represents him building his house out of the twelve sons of Jacob. Yeah. So Jacob. Or the is, house of Jacob. So even. Jacob represents one rock. Yes. And he will become twelve rocks. Yes. And this will represent the building of the house of the Lord. But Mizpah, the watchtower. This is very important, very significant, because now the house is supposed to be watching for the return of the Lord. Mm. So the one rock will, will return and all will become one rock in yes. Him. Um, the bringing in of the... Um, Ephraim representing Gentiles, yes. that will again happen by 12 apostles. Yes. And so the... Cornerstone becoming 12, and then 24, and there's 24 elders. This is the completion of complete authority on earth. So, yeah. uh, out of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, uh, the uh, it's only half the authority. Wow, yes, and yes. And the representative of the house of God. Then the other, the Gentile part will become mm. 12 
uh, out of the 12 uh, apostles, and oh, we know yes. that the, the Paul says that forms a foundation. Well, we even know from the book of Revelation we have the, the gates and the foundations. Exactly. Um, now, now, so he judges in a very specific way. That's why he takes a mm. circular route. Uh, him taking the circular route from the one rock where that's Bethel that represents Jacob and God's plan and Jacob represents the body so Jacob actually represents in that instance um, a Messiah which is one so Yahweh is one then he would go from there and he would do a circular route to um, where the 12 tribes are represented and then the watchtower looking forward to the return of Messiah And um, his actions as a judge and a prophet now becomes a um, a symbolic uh, picture of serving the body or the church or the bride on earth, the way to serve the body. Now, in serving the body, we always have to have a circular root in our actions and our heart, in our ministry, in the way we present the word, in the way that we minister prophetically, in the way that we minister apostolically. There has to always be a return to the basic plan of God, mm. and one God that is going out of that is going to be um, he's going to choose according to the promises one mm. Jacob that's going to represent one body on earth. Mm. Uh, or it will be multiplied onto several in the form of Jacob, but that has to be the seed. Yes, and then it will come back to one body watching. Uh, so we have to work these things into any way that we minister in, uh, to the body. So his entire life literally becomes a prophetic picture. He represents both Jew and Gentile as a person. And, uh, Amazing. Amazing. Literally, literally re- represents the fivefold ministry. He represents king, priest, prophet. He's so amazing. Uh, ah. <laughs> um, but his life is exists uh, to to serve the yes. body, to serve the plan of God, yes. the yes. fulfillment of the plans of God. And yeah. at any cost, fulfill the will of God. Exactly. Stay within the plan and within the ways of God. Exactly. It's, it's phenomenal, phenomenal character. But we have so little time. Let's mm. look at some of the other important ways that the, we're not going to be able to go deep into it. So now next what happens is uh, God does not give them victory over the Philistines. And um, although he... So, so, so Samuel prophesies to Eli. Eli. Then, One the Samuel chapter four. Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Now, here the the Ark of the Covenant. Let's remember, it is a, a box made uh, by specifications uh, that God gave. Inside is the tablets of Moses, the rod of Aaron, the manna laid up. Then there's two cherubim looking down, uh, basically representing the blessings and the curses, um, because they're trying to look at the law, but the mercy seat is on top and the sprinkling of the blood. And above the Ark of the Covenant is the very presence and the glory of God. And what they're doing here is God, it very clearly says that they ask, why has God defeated us? Yes. Um, by the hand of the Philistine on the side of the Philistines. So now, they understand that they lose this battle, not because they lost to the Philistines, but because they were defeated by God. And God then, the what the two um, the wayward priests does, 
And what the elders, the elders decide is, let them bring the Ark of the Covenant, mm. the Ark of God, in and let the... So, so although they know that the actual person of God, mm. the eternal Yahweh, King and ruler of heaven and earth, he defeats them, they think they can use sure. his presence on mm. earth, so the anointing, to still accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. So now they've gone from just not obeying God, honoring God, they've actually gone to witchcraft via the Ark of the Covenant. It is again a foreshadowing mm. of the church today. Yes. It is a foreshadowing firstly of what the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites have continued to do. They will reject and profane and, and disobey the God of heaven and still continue with evoking the belief in Yahweh on mm. earth, uh, things like the Wailing Wall and all kinds yeah. of uh, sacred sites and so on, whilst they ignore the very holy living God. Yes. So this is, and then the Christian church is worse. <laughs> they, um, the, this is what we're seeing in the world today. They would use, try and they endeavor to use the anointing of God. Yeah. The presence of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, to accomplish yeah. that which they want to accomplish whilst uh, profaning the very will and the word of the living God. So this is a foreshadowing of that action. And we know that what happens out of that is that they are defeated and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. Philistines get to handle the Ark of the Co Covenant. God does not break out against them the way that he broke he out against the Jewish, the Jewish people. Then they take it away. Now this becomes very important yes. and significant. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see God acting sovereignly in power and judgment mm. without the uh, partnership that he has with his prophets yes. or his kings or his people. Um, there's always a Moses or somebody that mm. is working together with and mm. Noah or an Abraham, yeah, God is now sovereignly moving in the land of the Philistines. Yeah. This is um, extraordinary and it's significant. So, the Ark of the Covenant is now no longer, the presence of God is no longer in Israel. The presence of God is in the land of, that will be judged. Yeah. Um, but the, the real significance here, is, as it points towards the unfolding of God's plan, is that in our day, we're seeing that the Word of God has been removed. Now, first, we see the unfolding of this. So, after Malachi, in between the time where God keeps warning them of judgment mm -hmm. and the time when Yahushua is born, yes. uh, there's the Word of God is, is taken from the Hebrews. Yeah. Um, so this was an unfolding of this picture, mm. where the presence and the Word of God is taken away mm. from them. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant, very importantly, has the law on the inside. Yes. Now, in our day, we are living in this time frame. Wow. We're living in this time frame. Actually, we have seen it unfolding where the presence of God, the Word of God, the holiness of God, and the, the law of God mm. has been 
removed. It's been taken away by the Philistines. Now, I believe that the Philistines that have taken away the Word of God is the very Christian church that exists sure. on earth today. Um, they have replaced it with other things. They have taken the Word of God into the house of their God, their despicable mm-hmm. I- uh, idol Dagon, or Baal, whichever uh, we want to look at. Yeah. But that is where the Ark of the Covenant, in our day, the mm. Word of God has been placed. Now, we see that God breaks out against them. Mm. And then God sovereignly uh, brings His Ark of the Covenant back to His people. Now, this is the good news that we are also seeing the unfolding of this. This is a prophetic unfolding, a prophetic picture of that it will be God sovereignly that, mm. that restores the... Uh, presence of God, the Word of God, the anointing power of God, the governance of God, the and the presence of God, of God the <laughs> covenant. And we are in the days where He is sovereignly yeah. restoring His covenant again. Yes. Um, both God's people and the enemy did, did everything in their power to um, to actually s- see that the Word and presence of God, the governance of God, is would have been lost on earth. Yes. But yes. He restores it. So this is very important mm-hmm. to understand. But in bringing it back to the Israelites, it brings judgment. Yes. So at first they rejoice. Yeah. They rejoice that um, the ark is restored to them. And then what they do is they look into the law. Mm-hmm. They open the ark of the covenant. And originally they were... They lost the Ark of the Covenant because 30,000 of them fell by the hand yes. of the Philistines. Yes, when the Ark was taken. Okay, so they, they're willing to give up, let go, the most precious uh, part of their culture, their history. The Ark of the Covenant represents who they are. Exactly. They're willing to let that go because they lost 30,000 men. Mm. When the men open the Ark of the Covenant and they look into the law, God kills 50,000 of them, 50,070 of them. So now we see that the loss when the Ark is actually restored is far greater. And this is also a prophetic unfolding. What will happen when God and He is uh, restoring His covenant, His word, His presence, His his commandments to His people... Mm. But as people are, again, looking into the, the truth of God, so there was a time when it was just Christianity. Um, it was uh, not Yahweh, faith on earth. There were some remnant, but Christianity. But then people started asking questions, started seeking for God again, and God is restoring His word. But at the moment, we're seeing that it's bringing a lot of judgment. Yes. A great Many are falling because they yes. come that in the in the coming to the the covenant again. Mm. They instead of looking at the presence of God, the holiness of God, the plan of God, they want to look into the law, sure. and they are falling yeah. by the number. And this is just the way it is going to be. It cannot be stopped because it's part of the unfolding. Now. Uh, so then the ark is restored. There's the consecration mm. of... Um, so that they eventually take it to a place where the ark is going to be there for 20 years. Yes. And they consecrate a man to look after yes. the ark. 
Now this we're also seeing as a prophetic unfolding. So within this time where um, the people do not know how to deal with the Holy God anymore in our time, where many will come to the law and fall, God is consecrating somewhere in uh, the middle of nowhere as some people to to minister mm. unto the covenant. And so we're not going to go into that. But then some other interesting little bits can we look at? Can we look at Jonathan yes. and Saul? So... The prophetic unfolding of Saul and King David. So King David will now represent um, the New Covenant Church. King David will represent God's actual uh, redemption plan that involves the Jew and the Gentile. So he comes from the house of, of Judah. Mm -hmm. And Yahushua will come from his bloodline. Mm -hmm. But he represents the, the, the grace of God. Oh, um, in such a beautiful way but why did God allow for King Saul to be anointed king it's God's own commandment and then, and then regret it when King Saul fails so what's the prophetic picture of King Saul it's just the Israelites it's his, it's his original authority on earth the Israelites carried the authority of God on earth because mm. they had the word and they had the covenant um, he represents God's uh, people. Yes. His authority, his priesthood, his kings. And King Saul falls because this is a picture of the big picture. Of course it is, yeah. And he replaces King Saul with King David. <laughs> and King David simply represents the body of Messiah on earth. And um, so, very clear prophetic. Um, foreshadowing there uh, beautiful but then uh, let's have a look at where is it where it says they had no weapons um, so okay what is the problem with King Saul part of it is his disobedience to the prophetic authority Yes. And his sacrifice. And his sacrifice. Now, who was the sacrifices given to the Israelites? The sacrifices had to be adjudicated by the priesthood. Mm. Okay. In this case, Samuel is a true priesthood, but Samuel's sacrifice is not accepted by God. Just Saul, like the, Saul's oh, Saul, uh, sorry, Saul. <laughs> apologies. Saul's sacrifice is not accepted by God. So it goes all the way back to Cain. Goes all the way back yes. to uh, the false um, form of religion and the yes. adherence that we see in the is with the Jews today. Well, even with with because I mean God doesn't utterly reject him with his unlawful sacrifice, but then you know where the part where God actually rejects him is when there was direct commandment given by God, and he does not he does not follow God's commandments exactly the way it was given. He does he does a version of it. Mm. But not, but not fulfilling it. Mm. Um, so that even adds to it. So again, the Cain Abel dynamic of exactly. doing something like the will of God. <laughs> exactly. So not just completely ignoring it, but just adding a twist. And this is another prophetic foreshadowing of the compromise factor. Yes. Um, 
And so we know that the Jews were instructed to utterly destroy their enemies. Um, again and again. And this is where we come to this very interesting prophetic unfolding. Um, Adam was given authority on earth hmm. to subdue and to rule it. And remember, uh, Satan and the fallen angels were thrown, were, were thrown down to earth. And they are included in this authority that Adam is given. And Adam never, uh, and his descendants, us, we never actually do that. This is the picture of Israel not destroying the enemies. Um, Samuel, as the picture of the new covenant people, or God's uh, Ephraimite, will come and utterly destroy the king wow. of the enemies. Wow, wow. But now this is a picture of both the 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 Israelites all through history mm. never gained authority and never overcame the enemy Satan and the accuser of the brethren, never. But then, even in God calling the Gentiles... Mm. Even there, this dynamic continues, where even God's anointed church does not utterly destroy the enemy, does not overcome the enemy. Um, so this is why this is so important that we see even a Jonathan that is portrayed as perfect, yes. uh, loved by God, loved by King David. He definitely has favor with God. So that representative of the Hebrew people that is best friend with the representative of the new covenant mm. um, he still pays the price in yes. the end of the day yes. so there will be a, a remnant from the Jews that will come and become believers in Messiah mm. that will do all of this but they will still pay the price for their father's sins like Jonathan that this is part of this prophetic unfolding and then we get to a very uh, interesting piece of scripture uh, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, of one Samuel. Um, so now they've gathered together Saul and his armies and Jonathan is there and it says that from verse 13 oh, 16, 16 it says that Saul, Jonathan, his son and the people present with them remained in Gabeah of Benjamin but the Philistines encamped at Mechmah. And raiders went out from the Philistines, three companies of raiders. And then it says um, that there was no blacksmiths found in Israel. They had to go to the Philistines, their enemies, to sharpen their plowshares and their goats and so forth. And then it says here that although they gathered together to now go to war, so remember God said that Saul would set his people free mm. from, the, from Philistines. the Philistines in the time of the reign sure. of Saul. The, the, it's, things have gotten so bad that there's they no blacksmiths. Yeah. And um, it says, verse 22, so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. That was verse 22. So we're seeing that they gathered together 
it has come to the point where the army of Israel has no weapons. Has no weapons. Um, so they, they get defeated under King Saul. The Ark of the Covenant gets taken away from them. Uh, it's a long time because we'll see now that... Um, uh, remember that when Eli's sons die, mm. uh, one of the two sons... Uh, How's son? It doesn't matter. Uh, his wife goes into labor and calls her baby Ichabod. Now Ichabod uh, and uh, some of his contemporaries, they now... Ichabod's brother, uh, Achitup, whatever. The son of Phineas, he was the Lord's priest at Silo at this point in time. So the two sons that were killed by God, that rejected by God, their sons are now priests. They are there with Saul. So it's quite a few years later. Mm. And the, the Israelites has no weapons. Now, why is this part of the prophetic unfolding this is exactly what has happened to the believers of the way since the days of the outpouring of the Holy yes. Spirit yes. in Ephesians God gives us an armor and everybody still remembers there's an armor but I tell you what you'll have to search Heinle mm. for any believer today that has a weapon in his hand it's a matter of fact that um, the weapons that God gave us, those mighty weapons uh, that Paul writes about, those have been replaced by witchcraft. Yes. The ideas yes. of man. And um, it's pretty much the picture of, of God's people today. Um, people are not equipped with the word. No. The, the sword, that's the word, the, the, it could, that cannot be found. Mm cannot be found. There's no spear, there's no weapons, and there's no blacksmith. And this is more important than anything else. The blacksmith, the person that is able to sharpen the weapons, those are no longer to be found. And today God's people go to the Philistines to have their the weapons or the, the tools that they think they have. They go to the Philistines to have it sharpened. The Christian leaders of the world sure. are, have been going for years now to the rabbis in Israel. Now, they're going, those that are supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit are going to those that do not have the Holy Spirit to, to sharpen their tools. Um, the Christian world has turned to all kinds of paganism, um, all kinds of things using the tools of witchcraft the tools of the world the tools of the Philistine mm. uh, to try and survive to try and get a harvest to try and bear fruit <laughs> and um, the fact of the matter is that this is our big concern the call of our lives is to go out there as blacksmiths and train blacksmiths again because God's people are going to need weapons, but without blacksmiths, there can be no weapons. And I think we can close it there. There's so much more, obviously, this, in these yeah. books. <laughs> we could go on forever and ever. Um, hopefully in the future we can do a study of the kings mm. um, and the prophetic significance there. But I think for now, 
we hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it. <laughs> you can go have a look at a read through through these stories, especially these two books are, mm. are prophetic, not only prophetic books, they are prophetic books. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. See you soon. <laughs>